Welcome to Growth Island, your go-to podcast on how to be the best version of yourself. Now, let's join your host, Mess Freeze, as he interviews high performers and experts in nutrition, meditation, exercise, relationships, business, general health, and life's bigger mysteries. Welcome to today's episode of Growth Island. Today, we're going to talk about genius. I got probably one of the biggest experts in the world when it comes to the subject. He has a PhD. He's a distinguished professor emeritus of psychology at the University of California, Davis. Has a master and a PhD from Harvard. Has more almost like 600 publications and four books. Quite known in the field of psychology. I got Dean Kidd Simonson on. Dean, thank you so much for, uh, for finding the time. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Dean, you studied a bunch of stuff and we could do probably a hundred different uh, podcasts on different things within psychology. But one of the things that you're very known for and that uh, many of your books touch out in, on is genius. Why is that? And what is a genius? Oh boy, genius is actually something that's defined more than one way. And, and some of the ways that people use to define the term, I don't lie. So let me just get those out of the way, okay? A lot of people define genius as having a very high IQ. And that's been around for a while. It's even in the dictionary. So it's, it's not technically wrong. But the problem is, is that there's no indication that people who have a very high IQ are necessarily a genius by some other criteria, which I prefer. So, for example, there was this woman named Marilyn Boss Savant, who used to be in the Guinness Book of Records for the highest IQ. Her IQ was supposedly a 220. That's how it's the records is now removed. There's some controversy about how that was estimated. But the point is, here's a person who has the world's highest IQ. She's never invented. She hasn't won any Nobel Prize for her discoveries. She hasn't won any literary awards for her novels. The only thing she's done is she's written a uh, column in a newspaper where people ask her questions and then she gives answers that supposedly only a high IQ person would know. But actually, most of the questions she gets, you don't have to have a high IQ even answer. For example, one person asked her, why is it that when you go out in the summertime and you wear black clothing, you get hotter than when you wear white clothing? Well, I'm sorry, that's basic physics, you know. <laughs> you know, you're wearing a black shirt right now. If you went out in the sun, you'd be warmer. You, you would soar the sun more. So anyway, the point is, is that she's on a queue, but she hasn't really done anything with. Another definition you see to regard to genius, which is very common and I don't like, is it's often associated with um, little kids who are extremely precocious. There was one recent example of a kid who ended up being a member of Mensa, which is a high IQ society, age 13. There are a lot of examples of child prodigies who do absolutely phenomenal things. 
at a very, very young age. But guess what? They don't necessarily grow up to actually become adult geniuses. And so that gets me to my favorite definition. And it turns out it's actually the oldest definition. And that is a genius is someone who makes a pervasive and enduring contribution to a culturally valued domain. And by culturally valued domain, I mean almost any science, art, politics, war. It has to be the main where you can go down in history where they get a contribution to it. And so that means that you usually have to spend a lifetime producing one work after another that is the basis for your reputation. So you have you know, all of the symphonies and you have Michelangelo's paintings and you have all the battles fought by the podium. Those are all things that established their legacy. And we, they go, they've gone down yesterday for their accomplishments. They made a name for themselves. So that's the definition I Now, of course, there's degrees to that. Hmm. There are some people who are at the, sort of at the margin. Well, and just underneath the horizon, a good example of that is one hit wonders. There are people who are known for one single work and you were very famous for a while, but that's sort of that example in, in classical music, a composer named Taco Bell. And Taco Bell composed a canon that's performed in almost every single wedding throughout the world. He composed over 200 works, but that's what he's known for. One single composition. So you could sort of call him a borderline genius. He, he, he almost made it. He did have a, a lasting impact. Not at, it's at a very low level, sort of at the margin. So someone like Michael Jackson would be considered genius for his contribution to music. Oh yeah, I mean, he considered it. Michael Jackson is a genius in the domain of pop music. Okay, it's just filled out. And it's not just his, his singing, of course, but also his performance. I mean, one thing that was very fascinating about the, uh, the 20th, 21st century is we developed a lot of new domains in which you can shift. Man of the music videos that exist when I was growing up. And now music videos is a major way of creative expression. So it's not just how we sung, but of course, just actual dancing performance, the choreography involved as part of this. And in fact, it's interesting when I was younger, people used to look down on video games. Well, now video games is a major art form. And they're actually composers who just compose music for video games. And that's become a major art. It's hard for us to uh, believe it now, but there was a time when no cinema was not taken seriously. And now we recognize that we can have genius in cinema. So Steven Spielberg would be, Steven Spielberg would be another genius. Yeah, yeah, 
Spielberg or Hitchcock. You know, we have, and also Phil John Williams is a genius in film music. Of course, he did a lot of music for Spielberg. So that's one thing that's kind of exciting is that it's not just the old forms in which we have genius. No. And we can develop new forms as well. That's fascinating to hear because my understanding, I think, is probably one of the other ones I have up been told is like someone with an extremely high IQ, right? That that would be someone that's a genius. And then what you're saying, actually, you won't be able to judge genius before after a lot of years because they have to continually put out high performance or high output. I'm sorry, can you ask the question again? Yeah. So I said, it's just interesting to hear that definition because I think how I've heard about genius before is very much related to IQ, as you said in the start, and that then you could find kids and so on as you explain as well that are geniuses where with the definition that you like, you actually can't see a genius before they are a fair bit older because they have to have been able to produce at a high level for a long time. I'm sorry, that is probably the answer. So, wait, um, is, um, is your, are you Norwegian or Scandinavian? I'm Scandinavian. I'm Danish. You're what? Danish from Denmark. Danish. There you go. Okay. So of genius means basically that, as you said as well, it's not that much related to IQ, and then it's much more related to performing at a really high level for many years. So basically you can't see a genius before probably the forties or thirties, because you have to have seen them produce at a high level for many years. Yeah. I mean, let me just say first that, um, geniuses by how I define them, that is exceptional to them. They're not necessarily dumb. You can have high IQs, but there's a lot of high IQ people who don't achieve this. And, um, and then like what you brought up is, is an interesting question. At what point, if it's going to be based on achievement, do you start manifesting genius? And usually it starts around age 25 or so. For example, Albert Einstein developed his theory of relativity, special theory of relativity, when he was 26, as well as his full electric effect and his theory of Brownian motion. It was all age 26. And uh, Isaac Newton was around 26 as well. There's actually some people who say that if you don't start displaying your genius by the time you're 30, you might as well give up. <laughs> And that's typically true in certain areas like uh, mathematics and theoretical physics, and also uh, poetry tends to start very young. And, and there's some truth to that. But on the other hand, there are examples of late bloomers who take a while to discover their thing. And, and then once they discover it, then their career takes off. But I mean, one extreme example in American art is a woman named, she's called Grandma Moses. And she eventually started producing art in her late seventies and made a name for herself. There's a Grandma Moses painting in the White House in Washington, D.C. There's U.S. postage with a Grandma Moses painting art. But she didn't start until her late 70s. And it was interesting what happened. She used to do crocheting. 
And then she got arthritis. And she couldn't use the needles anymore. So her sister said, why'd you paint instead? Because you don't have to be as dexterous with her hands for painting than you do for crocheting. So she discovered her thing. She, she wasn't famous for crocheting. It was just book art. But when she started doing painting, she became famous. When she first started, her painting would sell for $5 at the local flea market. And later on, they were selling for $5. So there are examples of it. But it's pretty rare. Generally, the probability of you discovering your true mission, your vision, declines to know. And that's particularly true for domains that require lots of training. Now, if you decide at age 60 that you want to become a theoretical physicist, good luck. Because you have to learn theoretical physics. And that's been very hard. And at that age, there's something in the intelligence research where they distinguish between two kinds of intelligence. There's something called a crystallized intelligence. And that represents sort of your general knowledge, like your vocabulary, your knowledge of history, your general expertise in life, and so forth. And then there's something called fluid intelligence. And that involves abstract reasoning, problem solving, creativity. And you need lots of fluid intelligence in order to acquire like mathematical. And as, as well as musical, because those are both very abstract. Or chess is another example. That's also very abstract. The problem is, is that unlike crystallized intelligence, which tends to increase until you're relatively old, I'm now 73, and I'm still at the peak of crystallized intelligence. But in a few more years, I'm going to go back down, but very slow. Okay. Lewis intelligence on the other peaks at around age and then declines. So I don't know if you're over 30 or not, but if you are, your fluid intelligence is already declining. So that's why my math is getting worse than it used to be. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I should be able to remember all the things and calculate things. I don't use it any longer. So it's also like, if you don't use it, you lose it. I mean, that's definitely the case. And but on the other hand, you don't lose it entirely. One time, when I was around 30, I realized that I needed to a very complex form of mathematics. It's something called a differential equation. It's probably very differential equations. And I hadn't used any calculus or differential equations since I was in college. So when I did it, I just got a bunch of textbooks. And I read them, did the problems, and that's what answers in the back until I got to where I was when I left off and then went a little bit further. The point is, it took me only about a half a year to learn, to relearn what previously took me two years. Hmm. So you don't lose it entirely. Your ability to relearn is still there. But of course, eventually in time, 
the amount of time it takes you to relearn it, it's almost equal to the time to relearn it first place. <clears throat> so, Dean, how can us ordinary people uh, use some of this knowledge from geniuses or people that have done really great? Like, what are some of the traits or some of the things that they do different than people that don't accomplish as much? Okay, I mean, one of the things I think is very important to recognize is that geniuses are people. You know, there's nothing really exceptional about them. I've already said that they don't necessarily have a higher IQ. You know, people think Albert Einstein, you have a super high IQ. I mean, he's obviously smart. He probably would have qualified for Mensa high IQ society, which is before I actually roughly 130. But he certainly wasn't as, as intelligent as, for example, Robert Oppenheimer, who's the kind of thing is developing atomic bomb, was certainly much brighter than Einstein. He, he mastered theoretical physics much faster than Einstein. And he was extremely brilliant. But he, that means not the Nobel Prize. He made no original contribution to theoretical physics. Whereas Einstein, who's no more normal, in fact, I think that's one reason why Albert Einstein became something of a popular icon. It's everybody can relate to him. He was a pretty ordinary guy. You know, he had sometimes, you know, his own opinions about things. He was very naive in politics. He was a pastor through the police of World War One, And, you know, he was cut under, but anyway, love affairs, you know? So the point I try to make is that these geniuses are, in their respects, normal people. What sets them apart from the rest of us is they found something that they're willing to dedicate their life to. And, and make a commitment to master the material and then go through all the struggles necessary to finally present the right for the world. Because the point is, it's now a lot of times you're not originally accepted. Even I imagine people realize, for example, that Einstein was late in getting the Nobel Prize. And that was because many people in the scientific community could not accept his relativity because it challenged Newton's theories. Uh, and, and everybody yelled, I think, this sort of guy. And, and so he, went, he was nominated several times and rejected. And it wasn't, even though he came up with theory of relativity in, 2000, in 1905, he didn't get the Nobel Prize until 16 years. Okay, in um, 1921. So uh, they have to go through rejections. And of course, we've already talked about they have to vote their total life to this particular area. And those are kind of things that the average person on the street can't do. But you can still do sort of a, a mini genius thing. And that is, and, and this is something that's conducive to happiness as well. It's find something that you really love. Hopefully it's something that you could do on your job. So you get paid for it. That's that. But if it's not something you could do on your job, it's something like a hobby or some vocation of, of some kind, 
Sunday Kinger, or you like the right poetry, or whatever it may be. But find something that allows you to fulfill a potential that's not being fulfilled otherwise, and something that somewhat makes you unique. This is something that's interesting. A lot of people don't know about genius is the etymology. Um, the word genius actually goes back to the ancient Romans, ancient Roman mythology, and ancient Romans believed that each person was born with a genius. It wasn't special and special people. Everyone was born with a genius. And, well, there's a little qualification on this. If you're a male, you were born with a genius. If you're a woman, you were born with a Juno. But the Juno did the same thing as genius. And what this genius did, it sort of sent a guardian angel. It looked out for you. And what made you unique? What made you distinctive? What your individuality? And we still have that term in our dictionary for somebody having a genius for something. You know, like having a genius for a witty conversation or have a genius for cooking or doing great barbecues. Those are examples where the true genius is used for, the, for describing someone's unique interests and capacities that set them apart from other people. They're not things that are going to make them famous. They're not going to make an enduring contribution to some culturally built. But they're going to have a full life and they're going to contribute to the width of other people's lives. Even if it's, you know, doing the barbecue, you know, or strumming the guitar for the party, assuming that you're good. <laughs> That's important. So what, like ordinary people still have a genius according to like where the word comes from. But what can we learn? It sounds like grit is extremely important in regards to being successful. I'm sorry, can you answer it again? Yeah. So I was thinking like, what can we learn from these people? Like it sounds like one of the things that we can learn is that focusing on the same area and really becoming really good at that is one thing. Having the grit to continue when things are hard. Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing is people, I mean, just kind of battle. I think one of the things that sometimes people are missing lives is a, a very important emotion or feeling. It's partly emotional and it's partly cognitive. But it's the feeling of admiration, looking up at what people can do and, res and respecting that. Maybe recognize that you couldn't do that yourself. But knowing that what that person is doing is important in some way and having respect for it. And it may not, there may not necessarily be creativity or leadership, but maybe like moral leaders, for example. You know, like in the Middle Ages where, you know, Christians have their saints and the, the Muslims have their saints. And, you know, they are people that we look up to because they, It represents certain values that are important to us. And they provide, you know, exemplars of what it means to have a life 
that it's dedicated to some important principle. And I think that that's something that sometimes people, you ask them, who do you most admire? And they kind of look like, well, gee, I don't know. My mom, <laughs> my third grade school teacher. <laughs> you know, I think people need to have aspirations. And even if they can't achieve those aspirations, admiration is one of the ways sort of getting there to a side route. So what are other things that leads to a great life in your research? I'm sorry. What are other things that lead to a great life? Well, well now you're asking me to go well beyond my expertise. Okay. But, but then you know, both have I mean, academic I, and life expertise. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, to me, you know, having a meaningful life is the ultimate that you, and how do you attain that? I mean, there's many different ways, you know, some people attain that just through the family. You know, they love being a father or a mother. You know, they love having kids. They love being grandparents. They find that very people. Others do it through community service. You know, that long volunteering to do things in the project, you know, various projects, you know, like working in the wild to, you know, rebuild trails after the winter is washed them all day. You know, so people can go hiking in the summer. Right. There's a lot of different ways of doing this, but trying to find meaning in your life, trying to find significance in your life. And that is perhaps the most creative thing that most people can do. You know, it's creativity that they're doing for themselves. It's like, what will make my life the most meaningful it can possible? And, you know, and I said, because some people don't ever phone that. And they'll wander around for one interest to another, and they're not very happy for us. But I mean, that to me is the number one thing. Because, you know, I mean, some people, you know, believe that knows afterlife. So just focus on that. And it really doesn't matter what you do here as long as you live a, a moral life. You know, you've made the Ten Commandments or whatever it happens to be. And then you're guaranteed into eternity. But for a lot of us, well, you know, there's that term, but you don't know. You only live once. <laughs> and, and I'm a YOLO person. Okay. You know, I don't believe in the afterlife. So I believe mean, you only live once. You're given this chance on Earth. We hope many years on this for several decades to make the most out of it. And the number one creative task that we're born with really is to figure out what that is, what it is that will make our, our life meaningful. And this is what I think is interesting, what is a positive consequence of pandemic. Because all of a sudden there's all these people who were forced to go on home. Some of them were lucky enough to be able to work from home, you know, to do it remote. So they at least had money. But not not all everybody was, you know, some people could work. But even in both cases, forced people, disrupted their life in a way, forced them. Have what I've done so far 
do I want to keep continue doing that when the pandemic's over? And a lot of people said no. You know, I don't want to go back to that lap out of my office cubicle. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to get a job where I work remotely from a beach somewhere. Or a beautiful forest somewhere. Or I'm going to change my job entirely. And, and so intersecting some evidence of this, that as a result of the pandemic, you've got more people adopting the YOLO philosophy. You only live once. So you better make the most of it. Particularly since a lot of times, you know, these people are, you know, halfway through life already. And they look back and they said, well, the first half is kind of a bummer. <laughs> so I better pick the better half a lot better. So, Dean, what's something that, if you could tell yourself, the, the younger self, 30 years ago, what would you tell yourself? I would say I had to tell my younger self some major lesson I've learned over the course of 73 years. I would probably say, don't take things so seriously. <laughs> you know, I think when I was younger, everything seemed so desperate and so urgent. You had to do well in school in order to get to a good college. You had to do well in college in order to get to a graduate school. You had to do well in graduate school in order to, you know, get a good a job offer or a good university and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes it narrowed my focus. And so I would, one thing after another, I would lose as a result. Typically it's too serious. For example, I used to play the guitar. And I would play in rock bands and jazz. And not that I was good. <laughs> you know, I, I, I may have fantasized coming to Clapton or Jimi Hendrix, but I was nowhere close. But I enjoyed it. I enjoyed playing music. And, you know, I enjoyed jam sessions. And that was one of the first things that Elton got to graduate school. When I got, when I started Harvard, I go, this is going to be more serious than college. It's much more competitive. These people were also talking to students at their undergrad institutions. What can I give up? Yeah. So I gave up something I really loved. And I kind of, in some respects, tried to take back some of that. I, I tried to take back the guitar and it's just too late. It, it, it's gone, you know. But I used to do art, for example, and I gave that up. But certain other things. But is that uh, the price to get to the result that you got? Because that's another thing. Like, I often, when I talk to people that have been extremely successful, they say something similar. I would take things less seriously. I would have had more time with friends. I would have chilled a bit more. Uh, and then I asked them, like, that sounds fantastic. Do you know anyone that reached your results that have taken that approach? that have become less serious as a result of having that advice, taking that advice? No. But, but, well, no. I mean, I don't know anybody personally who, who I, you know, I'll say, I can go ahead and tell your kids anything you know, you say, don't take life so seriously. You know? And, and, and was it, when, I was, what I was thinking was that, do you think you could have reached the results that you like? You are an outstanding academic, right? Very few people in the world has gotten to the point that you got to in academia and with being productive. 
do you think you could have reached those results if you hadn't given up the guitar, if you haven't given up uh, painting? Or is that uh, part of the price, or can you do both? I think you can do both, but you have to, you do have to balance. You know, you don't have to be categorical about it. You can just say, okay, I can't practice guitar and move it all along. I actually did that for one thing I really love, Len, I love Marie Len. And I particularly am a student of Spanish. And I had Spanish in high school. And I gave it up when things started getting competitive with all that kind of stuff. But I, I realized I didn't have to give it up entirely. You know, there's little ways you maintain it, like just watching Spanish television TV. I live in California, where Spanish is a major language. Second most commonly spoken language in the state. And, you know, major television station, entirely in Spanish. And, and all you have to do is just catch the news in the morning and have it in Spanish. So there's ways of doing it where you don't have to. Huh? Hmm. Because, I mean, that's a good example, actually, because I want to stay up with the news anyway. And the news is news, whether it's in Spanish or in English, right? You don't have to have your, your, your news in your native language. So I think there's ways of, of compromising. So to get back to your original question, I think I could have done it. I would just have to figure out a way of balancing things out. I'd have to cut back a little bit. I'd have to realize that like in guitar, I just continue playing my favorite song in guitar, but I'm never going to play it for it. <laughs> well, I once was, but I'm going to lose that. Yeah. Right? But I'll continue to go good enough to play my fit songs in my song. Okay? But so I, I think there's a way you could have, I could have done it. And, and, and there's actually some evidence for that. Because there's a very interesting study that was done of Nobel Prize winning scientists. You would think that Nobel Prize winning scientists would have to make a lot of sacrifices to get they would have to focus on, you know, their theoretical physics or their laboratory experiments or whatever it happened. Well what the study did is it looked at creative scientists in sort of a hierarchy. So the highest level was Nobel laureates. And then you had people who were like members of their national Campbell. They weren't noble level, but they were recognized by their nation as being outstanding scientists. Then you had people who were just members of lower level honorary societies. They don't hold anybody who belongs to why you need his PhD in science, right? And then finally, just the general population. And they looked at how Committed they were various hobby, and particularly artistic hobby. You know, like music or photography or drama or whatever else. And contrary to what you might think, the higher the hierarchy, the more eminent the scientist was, the more they had artistic interests in noise. So, for example, Albert Einstein. You know, he was spending a lot of time working on the equation and things like that. But every once in a while, he would just pick up his violin 
and start playing violin sonatas, violin sonatas by Mozart. So could that also be that activates different parts of the brain? So it's actually supporting what you're trying. Yeah, I mean, it could be it's stimulating different parts of your brain. You know, it'll kind of be atrophy because you're focusing on on another part of the brain. And well, we don't really know. We do know that from studies of creativity, that if you're working on something and you're focused and focused on it for too long, you stop seeing what's on the periphery that may give you the solution to the problem that you're dealing with. I was helping Siri do. And so one function of these, um, you know, artistic interests or educational interests, it doesn't have to be art. I mean, what, nothing I said, see, go sailing in school, 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 you know, a little house on this lake, you Berlin, and you just go sailing. And what you're doing when you're doing sailing or you're playing the violin is you're opening up your mind to you know, other stimulants, you know, you're engaging in what's called mind wandering, we're just, you know, fantasizing this and fantasizing about that. And you never know how much that might all of a sudden open you up to things that you're overlooking because you've gotten so narrowly focused. That makes sense. Dean, what do you think is the difference between you and many other people that didn't get as far as you did? So you accomplish a lot, both writing a ton of stuff and got at the top of the academia. What do you think, what do you think made the difference? Well, I think the main difference between me and people are, is I was very fortunate that I had great writing skills, very early. I, as a little kid, I was an omnivorous reader. In fact, this is really nerdy sound. I loved reading the psychopathy. <laughs> but so and when you think about it, the second has articles on everything. Okay. And that actually got me interested in genius. That's one of the things that really fast when I read this is that there were all these articles about these strange people. You see a picture, and they were often dressed in an unusual clothing. They, they, they had their hair done differently. They have a wall of beards, no beards, mustaches, you name it, you know. And all I know is that they didn't look like people that I see it at home or at school. And I also saw that none of my family was in it. My school teachers were in the So I was very curious, very early in elementary school, what do you need to do? To have someone write an article about you in the encyclopedia. And one of the things that became very clear is you had to cheat something. Cheat something notable. There's a few exceptions. I mean, there, there'll be an article upon the assassin who really doesn't deserve there, except, you know, a lucky shot, you know, like Booth, assassinated Lincoln. But by far, most of the articles in the encyclopedia about people are great leaders, you know, great general, great politicians, great revolutionaries, and then creativity, great artists, great scientists. And so that's how I started getting interested in my research topic. Now, think about that. This is really fascinating because I'm interested in genius, creativity, and leadership. 
that covers huge area of topics. I'm not just focusing on science. I'm not just focusing on art. I'm not just focusing on politics. I'm focusing on all of them. So that would, that what that means is, is I, I was fortunate to pick an area where it was impossible to get bored. Mm. It was impossible to get tired. Yeah, I got tired of studying the product. I've got a lot of research on the president. I've written a book on the president. I got tired of studying the president. I can study Nobel Prize winners. If got tired of studying Nobel Prize winners, I can study classroom founders. You know, if I got tired of studying that, I can study famous artists. You know, and so I was very fortunate because I well, what happens to a lot of people is even when they find their thing in grad school, they say, this is very interesting. And then later on, they say, well, I think I've learned everything there is to learn about this. You know? And so what do I do now? Then they have burned out. Because they just can't imagine doing more research on what And for me, I can guarantee you this right now. Even though you're interviewing me about Gina, I still don't know everything there is to know about shit. I may be the world's leading expert on genius, but my ignorance and part of my expertise is a huge list of questions that I hope to be able to answer before I die. So I think that's one thing is finding something that is very broad that can be the source of a lifetime involvement. Einstein did that too, but and so did I say, well, to, to a lesser extent, but particularly Einstein, he's best known for the theory of relativity. But he was actually making contributions a lot of different areas. He made a pair of contributions to quantum. And in fact, there's this noble moral named Max Bohr, who once said, it, in, in just showing what kind of mind Einstein had, that Einstein would have been one of the greatest theoretical physicists of all time even if he had not written a single word about relative. So we may think that's his thing, but he would become famous even if he hadn't written about relative. And that's because he had, I mentioned that at, at uh, 26, he had what's called an NS um, miraculous year. He made four major contributions in that year, any one of which would be worth one of which was a special theory. So, so he had that breath hmm. that could motivate it. So he was working on the fight the no theory just a few days before he died. Personally, Dean, time is running. Goes fast. I knew I would be able to talk for you for hours, but uh, <laughs> time is well. Where can people find out more about you if they're like, this sounds interesting. I want to learn more about Dean. Oh. Guess what? <laughs> it's called um, the Genius Checklist. Yeah. Published by MIT Press in 2018. And it's uh, the subtitle is Nine Paradoxical Tips on How You Could Become a Creative Genius. And it doesn't actually have a checklist. That just murdered the title. <laughs> but you can use it as a checklist. And it tells you really everything you need to know. 
basically everything that I've learned over the past 40 years, it's all there. And it's not just my research, it's research of anybody who standards their genius. And I also should point out that it's accessible because I've adopted a format where all the references and citations or whatever are hidden in the back of the book. No footnotes, no citations whatsoever. Just what we've learned hmm. to make it accessible as possible. Because I have a hope that maybe some little kid will this up and say, oh, so this is what I need to do to figure off the Kelly Albert Einstein or weed out a bitchy or whatever it happens to be. So that's my recommendation. And it's, by the way, by the way, it's in your English is not very good. It's in Japanese and Russian and German and okay. it's, it's at, at least a half dozen other languages. Polish. Yeah. <laughs> I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes and also links to you as well. If you had to say one uh, of the the things from the checklist. If we had to like sum it up in one minute, what was one of the things from the checklist in the book? One. One of how many was? <laughs> I think the main lesson, neural lesson, is that uh, genius is extremely complex and much more complex than people. It's back to what I said earlier about it. it's just not my day. Hmm. And that, that's why I expressed it in terms of paradoxes. I think I expressed it in terms of opposites. So like one of the paradoxes is get off, score really high on a cute test. Also completely ignore taking IQ tests. So, and I talk about that. Where IQ is, is useful and where it's not. But the main thing is it's very complex. And one of the things that makes it really complex, and we didn't get a chance to go into this, is there's different kinds of genius. So scientific geniuses are different than artistic geniuses. Geniuses are different than political geniuses. And so it's not a one size fits all things. Sometimes people think you have this generic capacity to be a genius. I mean, get back to Albert Einstein. It's obviously one of my favorite examples. Obviously a genius in physics. But when he started talking about politics, he made a fool of himself. He was not a political genius at all. So it's, you have to pick the right genius hmm. for you. Maybe that's the lesson. Yeah. The right genius for you. But I think that's a good advice in general. Find a thing that really lights you up. Yeah, especially all for, for living a, a life of meaning and a happy life, right? Dean, thank you so much for your time here on the show. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Island. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes on how to be the best version of yourself. And if you found this show helpful, then please leave us a review so more people will learn about the podcast or share with a friend who can benefit from it too. Thank you again and have a wonderful day.